She stood suddenly, awkwardly, as if her mind had made itself up and ordered her body to follow, resistance taking up residence in the large muscles of her legs as she bade them walk. Above the lighted window was a shallow awning that didn't quite shield them from the rain, and under the awning, a window box shaped like half a wheel. It housed a tiny crib lined with soft straw over which was a blanket. Someone had crocheted a blanket of little squares in different colours backed with thick wool. Someone had cared enough to do that. She laid him on the straw and put the blanket on top. He didn't cry even though the rain was still falling and the awning was not keeping them dry. She bent over to wipe a droplet of water from his cheek with her thumb. He only looked at her, big eyes filled with that light, brightest in babies and the dying, the inner light that ebbs and flows with the passing of years, is they would not pass together. We don't always know the right thing, she said, her voice surprisingly true. The rain was more like sleep now, she mustn't tarry. Quickly, she started turning the handle, her fingers numb with the cold. The wheel creaked and began to turn inwards. The baby stirred a moment and then settled, eyes closing. As she wound the handle and the crib moved slowly away from her, she felt the rush of cold in her belly, a cold that would never now altogether leave her. Away from her towards his life. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard journalist and author Mary Rose McColl reading from her new novel, The True Story of Maddie Bright. It follows a 17-year-old girl, Maddie, as she accepts a job as a serving girl on Prince Edward's 1920 royal tour of Australia. Decades later, in 1981, Maddie is living in a lopsided house in Brisbane. Her story intersects with that of a journalist in London, Victoria Bird, who's chasing down the identity of a famous writer who goes by the pen name M.A. Bright. I'm here with Mary Rose in the Allen and Unwin office to chat about the book. Hi, Mary Rose. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Angus. Lovely to be chatting to you. So we're talking about this book, The True Story of Maddie Bright. And is it right to say that the idea for this novel began when you heard about an incident in 1920 where a royal train carrying the Prince of Wales derailed? Uh, Yes, that's right. So in uh, 1920, Edward, who was the Prince of Wales before Charles, uh, derailed in Western Australia and I just found that really interesting that... I had never heard that of a train crash of you know that um, that uh, the sort of Prince of Wales was in, and uh, three carriages went over uh, on a, an embankment, and the prince was okay. There were no injuries or anything, but even so, I just found that kind of interesting. I wouldn't say that that was the um, the spark for the novel, but what I would say is that I, I, when I read about it, I thought, wow, wouldn't that be a great scene in a novel? And then just filed that away, really, um, and kind of went from there. Okay, yeah, it must have been a huge story at the time, like a royal person in a train crash in like the desert of Western Australia. It's a fabulous story, and I hadn't heard of it either until I started reading this book, so. 
Apparently he came out the window with a decanter, a whiskey decanter, and said, I've managed to save what's important. <laughs> and then when he got down and they asked him, was he all right, apparently he said, um, uh, well, I'm just relieved that we finally managed to do something that wasn't on the blasted schedule. Because <laughs> they really, it was a very, very busy tour. And he was young, he was 26. And so, you know, I, I can see why um, he probably was happy to be doing something different. Well, yeah, you imagine someone, if that happened to someone in the royal family back then, that they would, you know, throw a pompous temper tantrum. But that's quite a, you know, humorous response. Yes, Edward... Edward was, he was only 26 then, and so I'm not a historian, I'm a novelist, and so he's a character in the novel, and um, and I'm, you know, I'm interested in, you know, when you write real historical figures as characters, they have to kind of work on the page in the novel, so it's not Edward, it's a character, you know, who takes after Edward, and he was 26 and a very kind of youthful um, representing the future, very different from his father, who was very pompous and proper. And he was in that tour of Australia that he did in 1920 and of Canada in 1919, he was absolutely adored. People just, he was very beautiful, um, charming. He drew people to him, um, a lot like um, Princess Diana 60 years later. And so I found them these parallels between the two of them quite interesting you said that that finding out about that train crash wasn't actually quite the spark of the novel so what was the spark i mean novels are a collection of all the things that you you're experiencing and so um the novel i did before this one was a novel called swimming home about the first women to swim the english channel and they were you know, extraordinary athletes in, and, and the first woman swam the English Channel in 1926. And uh, at, the, at that time, newspapers were not allowed to have photographs of women in anything suggestive. But because they were athletes, they could photograph them in these tight-fitting swimming costumes and they sold many more papers. But for the girls, some of whom were as young as 13 or 14, it was awful because they turned from being you know, athletes who who were uh, doing something amazing to page three girls. And I don't think, and I just found that whole idea of celebrity and what we do, particularly to women, but generally to celebrities, kind of interesting. And I want to explore it further. And I guess you'd have to say that other than the Kardashians, there's nobody in the world more famous for being famous than the royal family, than the British royal family. And so if you were going to explore notions of celebrity and fame and how that works, then that's a good place to start, really. So I guess that was the spark. Um, and then uh, I sort of... I don't... So that's the sort of thing that was driving me to think about the novel. But... I'd say it's a character-driven novel in that once I had Maddie Bright uh, as an old woman, so she's 20, she's 17 in 1920 when she's on Edward's train, but she's writing the novel for many years later. She's telling her story for many years later in 1981 when she's living in Brisbane, as you said, and that once I started writing Maddie as an old woman who has lived a life where she's had enormous suffering and enormous uh, experiences. I that was just that it's so it's character driven in that way. I think Maddie drove it more 
than those themes even, really. I've read a couple of responses to the novel where people have said that the older version of Maddie now seemed to them like a, a close friend. Um, what about that character do you think like prompts that response in people? I think that Maddie has... Well, she's got to an age where she really couldn't care less what people think. She's sort of the old person we'd all like to be in lots <laughs> of ways. Like she does some things that... Um, you know, are quite curmudgeonly and difficult and, and she makes the mistakes that older people make. Uh, and But what she's got, I think, is this enormous heart and this uh, she's learned so much from what she's been through and I think she's her whole life has been sort of... She's seen things one way and now at the beginning of the novel, the reason she's telling you the story is that a letter's come through the post that might change Maddie Bright's true story... Maddie Bright, the true story of Maddie Bright is not a true story. It's a novel, just by the way. Um, I've been asked that a lot more than <laughs> you might expect me to have been asked that. And, um, and so the, the, the story might change for her. And uh, I think readers get on that journey with her because she does have such a, a big heart. She's just a very... She's, she's just a big spirit of a person, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you raised Princess Diana before and she sort of comes into the story through another thread of this novel, which is following Victoria Bird in 1997, the London journalist. And you meet her as she sort of, you know, as that unfurls, the death of Princess Diana. Do you remember that day? Oh, yes, the day that uh, Diana died. I was asleep and I woke up and my partner said that um, Diana had died. And I think... I don't. I just couldn't believe that it was true. We're the same age and so it just seemed impossible that somebody could be dead at 36. Uh, and then a couple of nights later I had to do a panel, I was chairing a panel at the Brisbane Writers Festival and it was with, with a bunch of women comedians and writers and they were really important people and I just was the chair of the Brisbane Writers Festival and felt like I was kind of not anyone really. I wasn't really writing much then. And I can remember in the prep session, someone raised uh, Princess Diana's death and some one of the people on the panel or someone made a joke, a pretty tough joke, and I kind of thought, OK, well, you know, that might be the way that we're going to deal with it. And um, we got the question uh, from the audience. Someone asked, how do you feel about uh, Diana's death? And it was Kaz Cook who answered the question, and I'm so glad it was because it was just the perfect answer. I'm going to get teary now. And she just said, uh, uh, Diana was the one true princess of my lifetime or something like that. And it was just the perfect answer. I think everyone was feeling this enormous grief that they didn't really understand. And I think it was, it was kind of the end of our young lives in a way. And so, yes, I mean, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said that Diana's death would have affected me before but certainly I think anyone who lived through that remembers where they were and what they were doing like John Lennon's death really yeah. of course I wasn't born when John Lennon died yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry Angus um so the Diana part comes in as I said with Victoria and one of the other stories that she's working on is to try and unveil the 
true identity of a famous writer called M.A. M.A. Bright. Bright. Yes. yes. So, so in fact, there's different ways that you can describe this novel. And the one that I've come up with that I'm starting to like, there's a new one every day at the moment, but <laughs> the one I've started liking is it's in a way a novel about three women across the span of history and and the main one is Maddie and she's in in sort of you know right across the novel and she's the first person narrator of this 1920 strand and the 1981 strand the second woman is uh Helen um who she meets uh Helen Burns who's the prince's uh, press secretary who she meets when she joins his tour and what sparks the 1981 Maddie to tell us her story is that there's a letter come from Helen about what happened in those days in 1920 and if you look at just those two characters first Maddie is 17 and is so coming of age in the 1920s which is the decade after the war the pressure on that generation was enormous you know because everything was hopeless everybody had lost someone and so here was the future and hope and she sees in Edward some sort of hope for the future. Helen is 30 and so she's come of age in during the war and has worked as a as a worked as an ambulance driver in the war and so she's lost some of her idealism already and then the third woman character is this journalist who's exactly the same age as uh, Princess Diana and yes she has this lead to the reclusive novelist M.A. Bright uh, who she learns lives in Australia but she can't follow the lead now because she's got to go to Paris and cover Princess Diana's death um, and I really I love that I, I really love that ability that a novel with those nested narratives has to kind of look at issues and people really across that span of history um someone asked me what had changed for women and I said the frocks definitely were different um, <laughs> and I'm not actually sure what else had uh across that time lots they had obviously but um some of the issues were much the same so yes so that yes Victoria is trying to find M.A. Bright. So where did that idea of the sort of uh, reclusive literary identity come from because there are a couple of those and people love to speculate and I do love a literary scandal so was there anything in particular in real life that uh, inspired that thread of the story? Yes yeah in the during the writing process now I can't tell you when I decided that there would be some novels within the novel um, and I'm glad we didn't start there because that just sounds terribly postmodern and complicated <laughs> and it's really not but but during the writing process uh, Harper Lee produced a second novel or well actually what we know happened was that Harper Lee's sister and lawyer who'd represented the author her whole life died and then suddenly someone from the law firm found a novel. We also know that it wasn't a second novel that it was an early draft of um, of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird called Go Set a Watchman. Now none of those things are in the novel but this notion that you could have once a long time ago had a novelist who wrote one novel that was that had become a classic and then disappeared from view I just thought oh isn't that lovely <laughs> wouldn't it be lovely if that could happen again and I, I, I stole really Harper Lee's whole life really no, <laughs> I stole that idea um, to use in this novel so that M.A. Bright wrote one novel a, a wartime romance set in World War One and uh, M.A. Bright may have a second novel um, but uh, has really sort of disappeared from view for now. 
Yeah. Okay, Harper Lee, that's so interesting. Yeah. I thought it might have been like an Elena Ferrante type situation. Yeah. Um, ah. Yeah, she's the Italian yes, novelist yes, with those yes. wildly successful novels. Who someone who someone said they outed, which was a terrible Yes, I didn't read thing. that article in protest because yeah. I was like this all Well I didn't read Go Set a Watchman in protest. Uh. What I always say that it's it's like looking looking at a draft of someone's novel is like looking at a an ultrasound scan of a baby and it's not even your own baby wow. you know like it just seems wrong to me yeah. that it's not um you know uh yes yeah so i the uh, elena ferrante's i haven't read those obviously to kill a mockingbird i've read and i love that novel did you have you read to kill a mockingbird i've read to kill a mockingbird yeah. but i haven't read the second one either no um, not because of protests though i just haven't got around to it but yeah. now that you've said that i'm rethinking Maybe I shouldn't either. Yeah. In solidarity. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. with Harper Lee. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking about connections uh, between real life and the true story of Maddie Bright, obviously we've got this character of Victoria Bird, the journalist. Um, we, did you bring any of your experiences as a journalist into that character? Uh, so I did a cadetship in journalism when I left school and I come from a family of journalists. Both my parents are journalists. Uh, or were journalists, and I've got a great uncle who was a journalist of some note um, in England and America. And so for me, the profession has always had this extraordinary romanticism to it, so that, you know, when I started, I I loved everything about it. I loved the printing presses. I loved going down to the uh, place where they used to set the pages in hot metal this isn't the 18th century. <laughs> this was fairly recent. And, you know, we, uh, we would uh, type stories on typewriters. There wasn't a thing I didn't like. And to me, it was a noble and, and, and quite venerable profession. I think it would be safe to say that I was well and truly into adulthood before I ever heard anyone say about journalism. Uh, it was somebody whose whose parents said she wanted to study journalism, and her parents said, "Don't do that. They chase people down the street." And that there's this other view of journalism, which I found kind of interesting. I thought, "Oh, okay. So it's not everybody thinks of it as the sort of venerable and honourable profession that I grew up thinking it was." And I've loved, you know, I'd rather my view. I'd I've loved the spate of recent films from The Post to Spotlight. You know, that are just about um, what marvellous things journalists can do. And, of course, where we are in the world now is journalism sort of... It's, it, it's, lost, it's lost entirely its business model and so we don't really have much journalism happening anymore and I don't think we've yet found what will replace that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people have said that. And as well, there's this sort of, you know, with the rise of the phrase fake news, this, yeah. uh, how people look down on it. And, you know, a lot of journalists are being hassled for just trying to do their job. Yes, yeah. And it's funny that you said that, Angus, because um, we're talking about now, 2019, the novel obviously finishes in 1997. And we blame the internet and the change in the business model for journalism. But many of the seeds of fake news were sown before that. So I think when it's when Rupert Murdoch bought into the London papers, particularly with the royal family, which is obviously the, the sort of context that this novel set in, uh, it was all gloves off. There was this, before that, there had been a kind of unwritten code. Uh, did you watch the series The Crown? No, I didn't. Uh, so there's a scene in that where Elizabeth and Philip are visiting Australia 
and um, they have this enormous barney in the house that they're staying in, which is, I don't know where it is, it's somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And I think he comes running out of the house and she throws some tennis shoes after him and they're screaming at each other. And then they both look up and there's two journalists and they've filmed the whole thing. And Elizabeth goes up to the journalist and says, this can happen in any marriage. And he takes the canister of film and gives it to her. Now, that would just never happen now, but it would not have happened in 1997 or before 1997 either. You know, I think that change was already taking place. It's just got more intense and, uh, and you know, we're seeing it repeating itself with the current um, members of the royal family. You know, I read the other day that Meghan Markle is actually having Will's love child and that's the reason for the rift between the brothers, the rift between the brothers. Like, so it's still all there, the kind of, you know, uh, it, it, it's just got worse and more intense and gets more hits, I guess, and more click-based. I think I was reading on your website as well, that just reminded me that on the, the Diana story, um, that you were sort of saying, you know, obviously when she died, when anyone dies, you know, um, they become venerated and then sometimes the pendulum swings back and they start being blamed again. And you, you said that you saw some people blaming her for what happened to her. Yeah, I think that on the 20th anniversary of her death, there was certainly, um, I watched all the documentaries because I was writing the novel. Now, Diana, we should say, isn't a ca- character in the novel. Her death is just, you know, um, she's, she's getting engaged when in the 1981 story, she's Diana Spencer engaged to Prince Charles and she's died in the 1997 story and yes um, on the 20th anniversary of her death there were a whole lot of um, documentaries and they spoke to journalists and photographers who'd covered her life and they've sort of come full circle and like I kind of I guess you know just straight after her death it was that the kind of thinking was that she'd been hunted to death by the paparazzi and maybe they are trying to to somehow you know justify their role in the coverage of Diana or whatever I don't know but there was this sort of backlash of well she wasn't you know that wonderful anyway and um I don't I you know what I didn't read anything or see anything that helped Build. I saw a couple of things that were interesting, um, but I didn't really find anything, and I haven't written anything, certainly the novel doesn't do it, that really helps us understand what her life meant in the symbolic frame. Just the enormous grief at her passing, and, uh, and I, I don't think we've un- quite understood that or unpacked that. In the novel, I think the thing I became really aware of, because I'm, I'm a mother, was that she was the mother of two boys and they were quite young to lose their mother and that no matter who they are or what they're born to or how much you hate the monarchy or think that, you know, we should be a republic, that's a really difficult uh, thing for a young person to grow up with and to grow up within the public domain, um, which those two boys have had to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of motherhood, you read a part of the 
opening section to your book, which is, as you said, the novel within the novel, written by this mysterious M.A. Bright. And uh, that's a scene of a mother standing before a foundling wheel where she was leaving her child. Um, what is a foundling wheel? Uh, so a foundling wheel was really a, it's a modified version of a baby hatch or a baby box. And these are just devices where women could leave children anonymously or people could leave children. It was mostly mothers. And the children would be, would have some sort of life. They'd go to an orphanage. So this is set in 1920, so that they wouldn't have much of a life probably. Um, and in fact, the foundling wheel was a more modern version, so it's like a round cupboard where you'd put the baby in a crib and then it'd spin round and there'd be someone on the other side. Um, and these were, I think, they were a sort of um, technological innovation on just the baby box or the hatch. Um, but really, however they work, that the idea is that you can leave a baby anonymously and it's to stop babies being abandoned. And in some countries, we are... Um, uh, in some countries, there's new uh, baby boxes and baby hatches where um, mostly mothers, it is mostly mothers, can leave babies instead of abandoning them. Oh, you know, because the shame and the sort yeah. of... Yeah, yeah. Why did you decide to open the novel with that image of the mother leaving the baby? Well, lost babies are a theme that, that I keep coming back to. And in fact, my last book was a memoir which told a story from my own life about... And it's a, it's a book that originally was addressed to a daughter I gave up for adoption when I was um, 17. And so that theme is sort of... It recurs in my work. Um, and I don't think that means that the novel is autobiographical it's not at all I didn't I don't feel I didn't feel when I was writing that scene that it was me leaving the baby or anything but I know that place I know that profound grief of loss of a child which is um uh is an enormous life experience and so I think that affected the, the the memoir that I did for a girl, the last book that I did, certainly influenced me in terms of um, writing this book. Not only actually in terms of a lost baby, because there's a lost baby in, in Falling Snow and in Swimming Home. It's like a sort of a join the dots, isn't it? Um, uh, but also in terms of, you know, we talked before about fame and celebrity and Swimming Home, the novel. Uh, I also got a little taste of what it's like uh, to be... To, to be in the public domain, to have your own life out in the public domain, because when the memoir came out, um, there were lots of stories written about it. And I thought, you know what, if this was my life all the time, I'm not sure I'd like that very much. Yeah. Um, you know, it, 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 was, uh, it was mostly respectful coverage and mostly people were, the readers of the memoir were people who had either lost a child or who were adopted themselves or who, yeah, it, the, the child in the memoirs uh, was the born through an odd relationship with a teacher and a husband when I was at school and the memoir was published at the time of the Royal Commission and then into the time of Me Too so there were lots of I got lots of people who had um, had stories like mine and no one had ever told they'd never been able to tell anyone their story and when they read mine they found that they could do that so all those issues are probably in this novel as well, but just in it, novels, the thing I love about novels, it's really different. I'm rabbiting on, I know. Um, that's that's what really I'm here for. <laughs> 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 I 
like a therapist. Um, mm. The thing I love about novels is that you can explore these issues and you can have the characters move in space and it isn't your job to have the answers. It's your job to stay true to the character's experience in the space that you put them. And that is so liberating as a form to write in, much more than memoir or essay or journalism or any of them. Your job is actually to be true to the characters and true to the story, not to, you know, build a polemic or or say what truth is or be religious or anything really. It's just to stay true to those things and that's quite a big relief. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they say the best writing asks more questions than it answers. So I guess that sort of feeds into that. Um, it's also so interesting that with uh, For a Girl, it sounds like you sort of experienced a slice of the theme of the novel, which is, you know, having your personal vulnerable life out in the open. So that's really interesting that you sort of went through that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, it certainly was great because Victoria, of course, in the novel um, is engaged to a Hollywood film star and so she is really getting a taste of what it's like to be photographed all the time and, and to be exposed in that way and doesn't like it because she's used to being a journalist who asks the questions. I think my own experience probably helped that a little bit. Um, uh, having said that, I, I think, you know, that writing, it was a very different experience. I wasn't, you know, photographed in the street or anything like that, which I think would be just um, really frightening. Um, I often say, you know, uh, after the memoir that you, my vagina is now in the public domain <laughs> <laughs> and and there's something enormously liberating about that because uh, the reason that's important is that obviously having had a baby I gave up for adoption I'm trying to remember the, back to when the memoir came up came out now having given a baby away for adoption and having having the baby born out of a relationship that um, was a relationship where power was unequal so I was a 15 year old they were two uh, teacher and a husband in their late 20s um, I'm you know having sort of been through that it was all secret for a very long time and so there's something enormously liberating about saying I won't keep the secret anymore I won't keep secrets it's sort of you don't have you. It, it, there's something freeing about that. Have you read Women Who Run with the Wolves? No. So that's I've a, heard of that book though. Yeah, people have told me about it. Yeah, yeah. Clarissa Pincola Estes, and she's a Jungian psychoanalyst, and so she presents stories and then gives you sort of analyzes them, and the stories are much more interesting than the analysis. And the one on secrets is wonderful. It's a story that I didn't know before. So they're all traditional stories. And it's a story about a woman who's murdered by the woodcutter's son and he buries a body in the woods. And uh, from her body grow reeds and the shepherds make pipes with the reeds and the pipes play a song which is, I was murdered by the woodcutter's son and my body's buried in the woods. And so Estes says when we keep secrets, they will come up in some way or another. And I think that's true. So I'd encourage all your listeners out there to just tell their secrets. You'll feel a lot better. Absolutely, yeah. Publish those memoirs. Get it out there. <laughs> um, there is a baby crow that sneaks its way into Maddie's story. How did that baby crow come into this book? You ask excellent questions, Angus. Um, and so in the, I was editing the novel. I think I can't remember which. I think it was the copy edit. And uh, uh, there's a baby crow turned up in my backyard in the jacaranda tree and it fell from 
well, it sort of pretended to fly. Uh, it was on too small a branch and it was stumbling and it sort of flew, flew, flew towards the house and then banged into the back window. Um, and I just thought it would die for sure. But it didn't. It survived. And so over the weeks and months, there's quite a good story about the baby crow. This baby crow kind of became part of my life because I don't know if you've ever heard of baby crow, but they are um, relentless in calling out for food, which it did. Uh, and its parents came and fed it over the next sort of weeks as I was reading. And so I put the baby crow in Maddie's story. And then I put the baby crow, a baby crow, not the baby crow, in Victoria's story. And I, I was really sure that one of the editors would say, you can't have the baby crow in 1991 and then have it in 1997. But no one did, I'm very pleased to say. So it's like a really very deep uh, metaphor for something, but I don't know what, other than that there was a baby crow in our backyard and I found it very interesting. I love that. It's a beautiful cameo. It's yeah, like, yeah. And to know that that adult crow is flying around somewhere yes, after yeah. acting as a sort of, I don't know, talisman for your book or something. Yeah. It's lovely. I love that story. Yeah, well, the, the, the great story about... So um, first thing I did was ring the rescue people and say, oh, I'm going to rescue the baby crow. And they said, whatever you do, don't rescue it. Its parents will be nearby. This is normal. And lucky I didn't. I didn't see any parents, but I started to see other crows around. But after a few weeks... The baby crow was crying out one morning. And do you know, do you have noisy miners in? Mm. Yeah. So this flock of noisy miners came down and just started pecking at its head. And I thought, they're going to kill it. And it's flapping its wings. It's just got no hope, you know, because it's still very young. And, and like it would land on branches and fall over in a heap of crow because it was just so unco. And so the noisy miners are pecking around its head and I thought, they're going to kill it. And there's a dozen of them. And then, like from the top of the hill, they came in formation, like about a dozen crows, just came soaring down, but they didn't go to where the noisy miners, they went to the other side of the tree, which didn't make any sense to me. And then they came around the tree, the noisy miners went off with them, all the adult birds went off together, and the little baby crows, they're going, (laughs) and then I heard this chirp, 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 and on the other side of the tree were some baby noisy miners, and I think, it was sort of like the crows went by the noisy miners to a murderous murderer of crows, I called them, um, <laughs> to sort of show what would happen if they touched the baby crow. It was just the most extraordinary, yeah. Oh, my gosh, like an amazing interspecies, like saga playing yeah. out in your backyard. Sadly, yeah, sadly, I think I'd already sent the... Um, the pages off them, so, <laughs> yeah. so we couldn't put that in the novel. For the next one, for the next one. Yeah, yeah, That's for the fabulous. next one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Mary Rose, I'm going to ask, uh, I think this will be my last question, but it might be the hardest one because we were talking about before how there are so many fascinating threads to this novel and they all work together so, so beautifully. But after putting it all together and having the finished copies and now the book's out on shelves, what do you think the story is really about? I think at its heart... It's a book about the things that happen to us that are really, really difficult and how we maintain our hope through those and our idealism at some level and end up still believing in goodness and a good world. I think that's... um, I think I made that up because that's my journey in life. (laughs) But I hope that that's what the book has turned out to be about. Yeah. Absolutely. Very good questions, Angus. Really good questions. Oh, well, thank you. Well, um, The True Story of Maddie Bright is a really special book and I really loved reading it. So thank you so much for coming on to chat to me about it. Thanks, Angus.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. The True Story of Maddie Bright by Mary Rose McColl is published by Alan and Unwin. It's out now at all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online store at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.